0: Greetings, everyone. This is the Sound Health Radio Show with Richard, talk-to-me guy, and Sherry Edwards is at work on the soundhealthportal.com. If you'd like to know more, you may go to soundhealthportal.com, scroll down to see the current campaigns. Campaigns are those free opportunities you have to have a vocal print done, and some of the current campaigns have been Corona Conflict fibromyalgia, PTSD, bio-diet. Scroll down a bit further and you'll see the campaigns, and you will see also, it'll walk you right through how to get a free report. You sign up for a free membership. That's just your email. And then it'll walk you through choosing your campaign and then recording two 30- to 40-second recordings directly from your computer and submitting those with your free membership. And within a couple of hours, to Ten hours is the most I've ever had to wait. You will get a report with a lot of information. I suggest sitting down with a cup of tea and reviewing that. And then if you have a healthcare practitioner that you work with that you think would be open to that kind of information, you could take it to them and sit down and talk with them about, this is too high, this is too low, what's that mean? Could we talk about this? Soundhealthportal.com, an amazing resource. You can also go to soundhealthoptions.com. Click on Classes and then scroll down to Portal Presentations, and you'll see videos available of recent demos Sherry has done on air with a a live workup. And the great thing about seeing uh, the video is that you'll get an idea of the vast capabilities of Sound Health Portal and the kinds and ways that you'll find information. There's a lot of really Great visuals on the Sound Health Portal that make things obvious that you want to look into now. An amazing resource. I cannot advocate for the Sound Health Portal enough. And for a replay of today's show, this great show with author Gwen Olson, author of Confessions of an Rx Drug Pusher, really amazing information. And also, we will be talking about the film Prescription Thugs, which Gwen is in and talks extensively about the opioid usage and addiction and recovery. It's a great story. Really cannot say enough good things about that film as an observation of, wow, who knew all that? So to hear a replay of this show, you can go to soundhealthoptions.com, click on the radio tab. Then click on Sound Health Radio, and right there at the top you'll see the flyer for today's show. And you can click on the link there and go back to the show notes and listen to it there. And or also at the top you'll see a link to either Stitcher or Pocket Cast to hear a replay of the show. And both of those, either Stitcher or Pocket Cast, I use Pocket Cast as my preferred podcast gathering tool because it works on everything, computer, phone, Chromebook. Both platforms, iOS or Android, it's really a great app. Either with Stitcher or Pocket Cast, you can share right from this soundtrack or the audio, the show that you're listening to. You'll be able to share this show and any of the other five or 600 of the shows there. That's not all of them. There's more. I think we're over 700 now. But you can easily share the show that you're listening to, which is really handy when you know somebody who's possibly interested in prescription drugs, and there's some of their effects. It's really, there's a lot of great information here. And with that... Gwen Olson is the author of award-winning book, Confessions of an Rx Drug Pusher, a 15-year veteran pharmaceutical rep from 1985 to 2000. Gwen worked for several pharmaceutical companies. She was a hospital rep and specialist for the majority of her career educating residents in hospital teaching settings and selling prescription drugs to doctors in obstetrics and gynecology, as well as orthopedics, cardiology, neurology, endocrinology and psychiatry. Gwen has a unique industry insider's perspective of the current US healthcare dilemma and utilizes both her experience and the insight she received during extensive sales training with pharma to eliminate marketing trends, to illustrate how current greed and conflicts of interest make the system itself the biggest health risk to American consumers. We first met Gwen in Jeff Hayes' documentary, Doctored, and now in the recent documentary, Prescription Thug. We have a great conversation with Gwen discussing America's current epidemic of opiate drug addiction as well as the approximately 300,000 deaths a year in the United States from legally prescribed drugs. That's right, 300,000 people a year, isn't that amazing? having just watched Prescription Thugs, a movie that you're in, a documentary, which is really still, I just watched it. I've watched it now twice and it really still does blow my mind that it's just more foundation Mm -hmm. of, from when we've interviewed Mm -hmm. before, back, I discovered oddly enough that it was just about a year ago that we talked to you last about when you were talking about your book, The Confessions of an Rx Drug Pusher, which is a great show. Uh, That's a great show. I'll put that in the show notes for everybody. And one of the things that floated to the top in my mind after I watched Prescription Thugs, in your research and the work that you have done and are doing, how much of this do you think we have to thank Ronald Reagan for? Because he was the president that signed in the right, air quotes, rights of Big Pharma to do commercial advertising on TV about drugs.
1: Well, you know, I couldn't give you a percentage of that, but I know that it definitely had an impact because, as you know, we're the only country in, in the world. I, I even believe now New Zealand is no longer allowing direct consumer advertising. It used to be just two countries. But I think that a, a huge portion of demand, I remember the statistics that I read somewhere before, is between 70 and 80% of the time when a patient comes in and asks a doctor for a specific drug by name, that they will get a prescription for that drug. So it has turned, you know, prescribing and diagnosing into more of a consumer-based kind of business where you go in and, and you ask for what you want and then the doctor complies because it is his business in giving you a drug. And, and I, I used to use the analogy of people that have, you know, been drinking coffee all day long and eating refined carbohydrates and they're sitting in there feeling fidgety and nervous and everything. And then they see an advertisement on television about restless leg syndrome. And then all of a sudden, you know, Oh, well, that's what I've got. I've got restless leg syndrome, even though that's a very rare neurological disease. And then they go into the doctor's office and ask for something for restless leg syndrome. I think that that advertising has really been had a very, um, negative effects on the U.S. population because we consume so many drugs based on just asking for them. And, you know, that's one of the things that I'm hoping that some of my activism and some of the things that I'm involved in will eventually uh, make an impact on getting direct consumer advertising stopped because it really has no place, no place at all.
0: Well, and it's really stunning to me. I think part of this came from, again, from this this movie that I really highly recommend to everybody, Prescription Thugs. It's on Netflix, and it's really... It has a twist ending, which I will not give away, but it was of totally like, what? I never
1: saw Yeah, it. even I had that reaction, because I didn't know that when I was filming it, so I was like, what exactly? What?
0: <laughs> and it's... <laughs> And really, it still rattles me. I just watched it again last night. And I thought, what? <laughs> How is that possible? How did we not know? But I mean, right. it goes to this amazing thing. I, I thought I'd written this down, but I don't see it here. But the statistics on, oh, here it is, that in 2013, Big farmers spent $226 million on an army of 1,445 lobbyists talking to congressmen. So if you think about the fact that there are 535 congresspersons, that's about right. $422,000 per congressperson that Big Pharma is spending to, large air quotes, everybody, educate, which is just yeah. mind-boggling. I mean, that there's, there's that, and then from the other side, we have this onslaught of commercials about everything from a happy blue pill to... Uh, as you say, the less restless leg syndrome or you have kids who are being drugged into a stupor because they have, you know, probably because their diet's horrible and they're exposed to pesticides and chemicals. That's just my opinion.
1: Right. Yeah, it is. And, and, you know, also when you're thinking about the fact that only about 10% of the price of any prescription drug goes to cover the cost of raw materials and manufacturing, that gives you a good idea where, why they're so expensive and where a lot of that other money is going, it's going to influence, you know, legislators. It's going to influence uh, the consumer. It's going, you know, in advertising and marketing and, and goodies and, and, you know, trinkets that are given away to the doctors when reps call on them and things of that nature. So it really could drive down the drug costs considerably if they didn't have to pay all of that money to quote unquote, as you said, uh, educate people because it's really more bribery is what it is.
0: It's really stunning. It, there's another stat here from, the, I think this was from the film, talking about that the United States represents 5% of the world's population. We consume 75% of the world's prescription drugs. That mm-hmm. That is mind blowing. And I think that goes back to that Thing we were talking about with the Ronald Reagan, you know, commercializing this.
1: What's even more startling is when you're talking about the opioid painkillers, which are what are basically profiled in that film. We're talking in 1991, there was like 76 million opioid prescriptions. And in 2013, there were 207 million people that were on opioid and about 12 million that were not. Uh, Even on a prescription, they just were taking it, you know, buying it on the street or whatever. But when you're talking about our consumption of drugs, the U.S. consumes 100% of hydrocodone that's manufactured and about 81% of the oxycodone. So that was one of the things that, you know, when I did that film, I did some of my own research and I was like, oh my God, I had no idea that the painkillers were such, you know, A huge market. And then I started tying that into the fact that it had increased even since we had gone into Afghanistan. And of course, you know, people think about the poppy fields and everything that we are, the CIA and and the the U.S. military is guarding in Afghanistan. And they think that that has to do with heroin production, but it's not necessarily heroin. It's for all of these opioid-based painkillers.
0: Well, and that's, you know, the, the poor poppy it was such a pretty plant. <laughs>
1: it's a bad wrap. You know,
0: it's like, it's such a beautiful flower. Uh, and it's, it's got such a bad wrap. Cheese, you know, because, and, and why are we, I think it probably goes to your prior comment about, you know, the cost of what it produces, you know, cost to produce something. Why do you think that we are so, opiate dependent? Is it because we're just being marketed senselessly or why is it like the drug of choice?
1: Absolutely, I think it has a huge thing to do with marketing because if you ever go into an emergency room for anything i don 't care if it's a scraped knee or you know whatever that you end up into an emergency room. I remember my husband a couple of years ago got a splinter. he was putting up a fence and he got a splinter that went through his finger and the first thing they did was give him a hydrocodone prescription he's like i don't want that i don't need a hydrocodone I mean bike it in prescription for that, you know." but that's it's just the way that they market the drugs and if you get a person addicted to a drug then you have a a repeat customer a refilled prescription and so i don't you know take that lightly it's the same thing with psychiatric drugs and i won't get off on that tangent yet but but just saying that if you have something that's addicting in nature then it's going to make more money long run so they they find every opportunity to give patients things that are addicting or habit
0: forming and if I can jump back slightly, um, when you were a pharmaceutical rep were you were you educated to educate doctors that this could be addicting and and in the long term research really shows that long term use of it isn't very effective but I mean were you were you educated to withhold certain information or how is how is a drug rep are you? You know, I don't know what to, informed to inform a doctor. Does that make sense?
1: Well, it's actually called minimizing the provider's concerns. So that's the way that drug reps are educated is they're taught how to minimize the doctor's concerns about things so that they won't withhold prescribing drugs because of their own personal concerns about addiction or abuse. So when I was selling opioid painkillers, which I did uh, for a large manufacturer of opioids, um, what we would tell doctors is that they needed to hit pain aggressively with high-dose opioids so that the patient would get pain relief quickly and they wouldn't take the product long longer term where they could develop an addiction. And because a lot of the products that I was also selling were codeine-based then we were told to tell people that if they took enough codeine in order to get high, that they would be so constipated that they wouldn't do it anymore. So, I mean, there's just various ways to sidestep the doctor's concerns, and that's what pharmaceutical reps are trained to do, is to minimize the concerns about side effects that doctors have. So, yes, I, I know that they, for a fact, have come out with, color, with different um, painkillers, and I I won't mention any by name because that makes me, increases my liability, but where they come out immediately with the launch and say, this is a non-addicting painkiller, but then you find out, you know, a few years down the road that they have this whole body of patients that are addicted to the drug because they were, in fact, addicting, and it was just information that they didn't disclose to the providers, and that's one of the ways that they market things.
0: Back to prescription thugs for a moment. It was amazing to me, and I've I've heard this. I've known other people who have had issues with, you know, just what I will call good old Vicodin. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you hear people who are taking like 40 or 50 a day because they're hooked, and I'm – about four years ago, I had a series of pretty gnarly surgeries, and I was in a facility for about a year, and they would hand out Vicodin like they were aspirin. Yeah. And it was just – it was mind-boggling to me. You know, it was just like, oh yeah, like you say, oh you have a hangnail, oh here's you know here's take uh, take a month worth of Vicodin. Right. And it's just amazing how easily they're written. There was a time when it seemed like, you know, it was a little more, well, you're sure you really want this. Now it's just like, oh here's a script here, take this. And I'm not sure if that's a twist in the part of the the Reagan phenomena or or what that is. Became so. Why are we so addicted? What is that? Is it just a mix of marketing, how marketing to us now, because like you say, we're now going to the doctor saying, you know, I have this thing and you know, on Tuesdays, I feel a little this way. Oh, and here's what I've seen. We'll make that better. Is that, is, is it just a mix of everything? How did we become so addicted?
1: I I truly believe it has everything to do with marketing and advertising and just And consumer ignorance as well as doctor ignorance because the doctors are not getting, you know, fair balanced information when they're talking to their pharmaceutical reps and they're extremely busy and do not always have the opportunity to go into, you know, their due diligence themselves and find the information and read the clinical data. And, you know, they use their clinical practice generally to gauge things. And a lot of times people that are addicted Addicted to hydrocodone, the last person that's going to know about it is their doctor because they're going to be doctor shopping or they're going to be getting, as you saw in the film, they can even, you know, source their drugs online. So it's, you know, it's not, it's not impossible for someone to be addicted to one of these painkillers and for their doctor not to have any clue that they're addicted.
0: Wow. Wow. And how can we? Uh, sometime we'll have to do a whole separate show talking about diet and sugar, salt, fat phenomena of marketing, you know, and foods, and how that I think leads to a pattern of addiction. That's a whole other conversation. So we're addicts, and and part of it is, and this is kind of what goes to like with Sherry's work at Sound Health. Is we we really have to start taking responsibility for our own health or at least paying attention to it. Or can you talk to a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things that I'm doing now as a certified health coach is trying to teach people to be proactive about their health and not wait until they're addicted to a pharmaceutical to finally, you know, seek information to find out, Oh, now I, I can't not take my Xanax without having panic attacks or I cannot you know leave my hydrocodone for a day without you know having to to feel like i'm nauseous or have sweats or or whatever i mean it's it's very it's very common that people don't have any idea, which really startled me because I've kind of been in this alternative health field for many years now. I left, you know, the pharmaceutical industry in 2000 and I went to the natural foods industry working for large manufacturers of vitamins and herbs. And so I started a self-educational process then about, you know, what is proper nutrition and how do I proactively take care of my body so that I don't end up on high blood pressure medication and, you know, things for diabetes and, and all of these things that people are currently taking for high cholesterol. And so I started paying attention to nutrition and exercise and getting clean water, sourcing clean water that didn't have fluoride in it because I had, you know, of course been thinking just like everyone else, well, that's good for my teeth that, you know, they have fluoride, they fluoridated the water because, you know, the, the clinical data shows that there's fewer fewer dental caries in people that have you know, fluoridated water. Well, what you don't go down and read in the fine print of that clinical data is the people that in those areas also had fewer teeth. So that makes sense that if you have fewer teeth because your teeth are crumbling and falling out of your head, that you're not going to have as many dental caries. So, it's just the basic things that a lot of people aren't aware of of how to source clean foods. You know, how to, to be paying attention to not having GMOs, genetically modified organisms, in your foods and to you know try to eat organic as much as possible so you're not exposed to all the pesticides and the horrific you know things that are put in the factory farms these days and you know it's really important to also move your body because your body is an engine and it has to be moved and and i used to use the analogy when i would talk to people with, just imagine if you were a computer keyboard and every day that someone poured a coca-cola over you you know how long do you think that computer keyboard is going to work with under those circumstances well it's the same thing with your body you can't continue to pour toxins into your body and to eat only processed foods that are denatured and do not have the proper nutrition before the body breaks down, just like an engine that's not, you know, cared for properly is going to break down. And so it's really important to exercise as well, even if it's just walking and and being out in nature and, and, you know, taking care of yourself in a way that would have been natural for people in the past, you know, maybe 100 years ago. But now it seems like a big ordeal now to even walk around the block, you know.
0: Go outside and breathe fresh air. <laughs> what, exactly. a, what a shocking idea. Oh my God. Yeah,
1: and ground yourself into the electromagnetic field of the planet. I mean, you know, we, we didn't used to wear shoes. I always think of things logically when I think, okay, it, the higher, you know, source that created us, is I call that God, <laughs> didn't, you know, didn't put shoes on us when we were born, so there must be a reason that we could go out and take our shoes off and and put our feet in the grass or put our hands in the soil or be next to nature in some way, there has to be some kind of benefit to that, because even if you think about the symbiotic relationship between plants and humans, we breathe out something that is a wonderful source for them of of nourishment, and they produce oxygen for us, which is also a wonderful source of nourishment. So there's a symbiotic relationship between us and nature, and we've almost been completely denatured by, you know, working in these, these, office buildings and cubicles with artificial lighting and people just don't go out and enjoy you know the outdoors anymore and that's one of the reasons I moved to Costa Rica I loved the biodiversity of the plant life and and the wildlife and all of that here and and the clean water and the clean air and and it's just it's much more rewarding to be in an environment like this and I feel much more at peace and much healthier
0: I always breathe better when you say Costa Rica. (laughs) It's (laughs) always amazing. Um, So I have a kind of a sideways question for you. Okay.
1: As a health coach,
0: if I came to you and and said, okay, I'm taking Lipitor. I'm picking on that. Well, let's say a statin drug. Let me take away the brand and say statin drug. I'm taking a statin drug. What can I do... Is there, is there hope for me? What can I do instead of, or is an adjunct to help benefit my system and possibly taper off of statins? What can I do? Is there something I can do?
1: Well, the first thing that I would tell you was that I did sell statin drugs when I was a pharmaceutical rep. So I had an education from pharma about this, as well as having done my own due diligence since leaving pharma about uh, the cholesterol-lowering drugs. And the things that pharma taught me about cholesterol-lowering drugs actually didn't start to come to light that there was negative things about them until Lipitor was launched. And you said Lipitor, so I'm just going to mention that because that was not the drug that I sold. And everyone was very concerned in the sales force when Lipitor was launched because Lipitor was stronger than the drug that we were selling Lowering cholesterol up to forty-seven percent. So, what what those sales um, force thought was, you know, oh my God, now we've got this drug that we have to sell, and they call them dog drugs when they think that someone else has come out with a better product. So now we have this dog statin that we have to sell, and you know, it's it doesn't lower cholesterol as effectively as the the drug that just came out and since it's new and it's got all the advertising and marketing behind it and, you know, all the hoopla, that we're going to lose market share. Well, it was at that point, and I had been selling the drug, the statin that I was selling for three years at that time, it was at that point that the marketing department started educating the field sales force about the detriment of lowering cholesterol too much and how that this drug, oh, well, we see that this new drug can be problematic because, you know, you can lower cholesterol too much. And the most common organic molecule in the entire body and brain is is uh, cholesterol, and you need that for all of your body systems. So, you know, if you lower cholesterol too much, you can wreak havoc in all of your body systems, and it will develop, develop other disease states down the road. So I'm thinking, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Why, why didn't you tell me that's when I started selling this drug three years ago? Because how am I supposed to know that my drug isn't lowering cholesterol too much or that, you know, it isn't problematic that people, because we're all individuals, you know, we all respond differently to pharmacologicals. So it's like, why is it that the education about this information only came out once we had to use it to defeat the competitor's drug? So, you know, that was the way that we could badmouth the new drug was saying, you know, oh, well, this drug could be problematic because, you know, it lowers cholesterol too much and you have no idea that this isn't going to cause your patient problems down the road. Well, so now when I talk to people about cholesterol-lowering drugs, first it depends on how old they are and, you know, whether they have a history of cardiovascular disease or a familial history of hypercholesterolemia or it really is largely dependent on the individual's health profile on whether or not they even need to lower cholesterol. Because as we age, we actually need more cholesterol and to protect our brains and you know our bodies from different disease states. So um, I would say to anybody that came to me and asked me that question, that they had a lot of self uh, education to do and give them good resources in order to, because I don't like to tell people things, I can educate people, but I also encourage people by giving them resources to self-educate, and one of the best areas that I can do that with uh, cholesterol-lowering drugs is send people to spacedoc.com, and this was a gentleman who's a former NASA flight surgeon, and he's really debunking the benefits of cholesterol-lowering drugs and talking about the dangers, and he has a whole slew of professionals and doctors behind him that that really have... um, jumped on the bandwagon to educate people about cholesterol-lowering statins. So I recommend anybody that's on a statin drug to go and to check out spacedoc.com, and it's space doc as in doctor.
0: Okay, wow. That's <laughs> excellent. And I remember last time we talked about it a little bit, and it was like, oh, statin
1: dick. Yes.
0: You see a lot about, you know, take this now, see your doctor, blah, blah, blah.
1: Right. Do you remember Bacol that was recalled and taken off the market, the statin drug? Do, do you remember yes. Yes.
0: Bacol, yes.
1: Well, yeah. if you remember, it was muscular problems. And if you talk to people that have been on wow. statins yes. for a long period of time, a lot of people have muscle problems. Well, I, I just talk to my clients about that and say, okay, so what is your heart exactly? Well, my heart's a muscle. Okay. And what are your kidneys? You, know, you have to think about that if there's muscle problems, the, one of the things that people that take statin drugs, they may not die of a heart attack, which, by the way, over 60% of the people who have myocardial infarctions to begin with don't have high cholesterol. That's one of the details that they omit when they're marketing statin drugs, but that is something that they taught me as a pharma rep. So. If over 60% of the people who have an MI don't even have high cholesterol, is, high, is cholesterol really one of the things that causes myocardial infarction? Or is it like if you were to say, you know, um, 100% or 90% of smokers have yellow stains on their fingers? You know, do the yellow stains have anything to do with anything? I mean, you have to really think about those things. You know, it's like, okay, well, maybe the cholesterol being present or not being present has nothing to do with the myocardial infarction, but it certainly does have something to do with uh, congestive heart failure. So when people are on statins, they may not die of an MI, but they definitely are more prone to having uh, CHF.
0: Okay, let's jump slightly. (laughs) <laughs> okay. this is another, well, I mean, in a good way uh, Well, I don't know Yeah, It'll cause me to rant, but I'll try and Mute myself oh, It even just gets my ire up Even talking about it Talk to me about the over of our kids You know, this amazing Phenomena of You know Adderall, Ritalin You know, derivatives That was another part, actually, back to uh, The drug film uh, thugs, pharmaceutical thugs, is talking about Prescription. Chemi- pres- thank you, <laughs> is the stunning, uh, I still have this visual in my mind, chemical makeup of Adderall, Ritalin, meth. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people necessarily hear those three things together, so I'm going to say them again. Chemical makeup, structure of Adderall, Ritalin, and meth. And then we talk about, you know, how, how does this happen? I don't even have really have a smart, formulated question. It just blows my mind that once you see those three things together and you think, really? This is good? You know, how did we, how did we get into a state of thinking that kids who, again, if we look at what they're exposed to, referring to the, the great research of Dr. Doris Rapp, who wrote a book 30 years ago by now, I think, call, I believe, uh, Is This Your Child's World, talking about what are children exposed to and is that possibly having an effect on how they manifest things we now refer to casually as ADD or ADHD, to like, how did we get into this state of drugging our children just like a default? It's not even, oh, Johnny can't focus for five minutes on something, and I'm sorry for Johnny, but how did this happen, do you think? Well, now we're talking
1: about the actual my area of passion, and this is where my mission really began, because I worked for several large manufacturers, and so I, you know, throughout the '90s when there was a lot of buyouts and mergers and all of that. So it's not like I only had training from one large manufacturer. I had you know worked for four or five different large companies and went through their training and in every one of their training programs. Children were, you know, positioned as being the largest expansion market available to the industry and the most lucrative expansion market for the industry because children are all insured in the United States. They're either on private insurance or they're, uh, you know, eligible for Medicaid. So every child has the means to have a prescription filled. Children are also the most compliant patient population, meaning that they take their drugs and they show back up for refill prescriptions. And the reason for that is because mom and dad make them take their drugs. Their teachers make them take their drugs. Their caretakers make them take their drugs. Their doctors make them take their drugs. So they have to do that on a repeated basis. So pharma is actually focusing on children. They're a cash cows. That's exactly what they are. And If you can get a child started on a psychiatric drug early in life, well, all you have to do is look at the disability numbers and look at children that were on disability. And Robert Whitaker wrote a great um, book about this, and it's Anatomy of an Epidemic. And he does some statistical, you know analysis in this book, which will blow your mind, but he looks at children that were on disability starting in 1967, and back then there was like 16,200 kids that were on disability. And then he fast forwards to 2009, where there's 600,000 children that are on disability. That's a 35-fold increase, and they are getting 100,000 new recipients annually for children for disability, which used to, there was not even an age category of 18 to 26 in the disability figures, but they had to create a new age category of 18 to 26 because of bipolar illness and mood disorder. So where am I going with that? Where I'm going with that is almost 85% of children that were diagnosed as being bipolar had t- previously been treated with Stimulant drugs, like the ones that you're talking about, such as, you know, the uh, Adderalls and the Ritalins for the ADHD, ADD phenomenon. But now we have, out of our entire population, 2% of all children diagnosed as bipolar. So what, is, what happens is these psychiatric drugs not only create a dependency and addiction problem but they start creating other comorbid states of psychiatric disorders. So you may have a child that initially couldn't sit still by the time that child's in high school, they're depressed or by the time they're in college, they're schizophrenic or they're, you know, uh, diagnosed as having some more serious type of mental illness, but they become a lifelong patient and they became, uh, become a part of the system. So, it is criminal it's absolutely immoral and it's the thing that made me decide that I didn't care if I lost my, my um, I didn't care if I lost my benefits I didn't care if I lost my job, my company car and, and all of you know my retirement and all of that I didn't care that speaking out became something that I had a moral obligation to do because I knew that our kids were being targeted. And then, of course, as you know from my book, I had a niece who committed suicide trying to withdraw from psychiatric drugs, and I just decided I would make it my mission in life that I would not, you know, shut up until they stopped targeting our children and our elderly because they were cash cows that they could could expand their markets in and that's that's the phenomenon that we're dealing with is that you know our children are basically i mean they've been drugged four times the rate of the general population in the last decade because of, of their lucrative their their um, market
0: and has anybody this is is again is kind of a sideways question but has anybody even looked at studies of children and looked at their what these drugs do in terms of effect in their learning ability I mean in their actual ability to be cognitive and learn of
1: course have and you know some of the big the biggest study that was done uh, actually showed that there was some benefit up to 6 weeks in duration that children could focus better particularly, you know, is what was the thing, one of the endpoints that they were looking at, which made them more capable of of, you know, focusing to study or to read or to, to pay attention in class. But after six weeks and long term, as you went the further down the road that the study continued, Children actually deteriorated in their ability to be able to maintain information, or or to learn, or to sit still. And it's like they have, you know, they have a an opposite effect over long term. Not only do they have a a, uh, more difficulty in getting children to be able to academically perform, but they also just develop all kinds again, like I said, comorbid psychiatric states. They become depressed, they become anxious, they have other problems that that will develop over time. And if they because they are developing bodily that they're developing in their brains, their kidneys, their livers, their bodies, they actually it stunts their growth. So that's the physical ramification as well.
0: And once again, I would ask you as the health coach, so I come to you and say, you know, I'm my boy is on Adderall because boys seem to be, am I correct in kind of thinking that boy, more boys on are on Ritalin Adderall-type drugs than girls are? Absolutely.
1: A? Absolutely. Okay. They are. Okay.
0: So the boys are more drugged and... I want to, what can I, is there something I can do to change that for my child? How can we, you know, is there something I can, what do you think I can do? Is there something I can do? Is there some way I can help my child taper off of this or get away from it or reduce? Or, you know, what can I do for my kid?
1: Well, absolutely. The first thing I would say is to, for a child, first of all, why were they drugged? And who was the person that diagnosed the child as having ADHD or ADD? Because what you'll find is that 99% of the time, it was an educator, someone who isn't even qualified, and they have recommended that the child be sent to, you know, a psychologist or psychiatrist to, to get drugs. So that's the first thing. Find out whether, you know, the person that diagnosed them even had any kind of credibility to be making this diagnosis, or are they just someone that um, has an overcrowded classroom and can't control the kids, and so this is an easy way to control the children. Secondly, I would say that even if you did have a reputable physician that had diagnosed the child, was the child ever tested for food allergies? What kind of diet does the child have? Do they sit and play stimulating games online you know, all day long, or are they outside riding bikes and, and running out? Again, getting fresh air and, and being next to nature and burning off steam. and, and Or are, do they have a sedentary lifestyle already as a child, indoors, on the couch, watching television, playing games, doing things like that? And because those things are things that you can, can – help to ameliorate the problem of, you know, being fidgety with it, just get them outside. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, if I couldn't go outdoors, I felt like it was like a death sentence if my mother made me stay inside all day long, you know. But the other thing is foods, because most people do not pay attention to the nutrition that they're feeding their children. And it's really important to know whether or not children that are diagnosed with ADHD have food allergies, because sometimes... Gluten can be a big precursor for someone being diagnosed with ADHD is if you have a very, you know, gluten-dense diet. And so if you can remove some of the, the pesticides from your foods, source your foods properly, remove some of the refined carbohydrates and all the sugars, the juices and things like that, Sometimes you can really make a huge difference in how a child not only behaves but how they sleep and their overall immune system, how it functions. So it's really important to take a lifestyle analysis of a child as well as an adult who has been diagnosed with ADHD or ADD and find out what ways that that can be ameliorated naturally.
0: We're really observing that lifestyle thing is so underrated so it's always appalling to me that now the first reaction is let's drug them right you know versus like well maybe there's something maybe we should as you said allergy testing or long term health well,
1: yeah that's the problem with with you know the entire population not just children is that we're always t- we're always tempted to mask the symptoms versus getting to the root cause of the problem and that's the thing that i try to encourage people if you know if you ask enough questions then you can generally or you do enough diagnostic tests and of course i'm not a doctor so i always send people to the professionals that can do those sorts of things and you know you find out that generally if you can get to the root cause of a problem there is a natural way to fix it versus well i'm not always but There's generally a natural way that you can fix it through a lifestyle alteration or, you know, something that you consume um, and not have to take pharmaceuticals at all. And that is my goal when I work with people is to literally have them on no drugs whatsoever, if at all possible.
0: Wow. That's an exciting concept. Uh, <laughs> it is an exciting
1: concept, but you know what? I'm 57 years old and I'm not on any pharmaceuticals. Do you know what a rare bird I am?
0: I'm in my and oldest I was book. Go ahead. Quick
1: fix queen. I was the quick fix queen at one point in my life. I mean, if you'd have told me 30 years ago that I would be sitting here advocating being you know drug free and, and not having, I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> Sorry about Hi, that. Hi,
0: guys. I,
1: I would have <laughs> thought that you know, you were crazy because I definitely believed I was completely, fully indoctrinated. Just one second. I'm sorry. I have to try That's to get right. this little of line to be quiet. Mia, quiet. Quiet. Come here. Sorry about that. Someone was honking the horn outside, so she decided to let me know that there was a visitor. Of course.
0: That's right. She's just <laughs> doing her job.
1: Yeah. So anyway, so I really think that 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 speaks to the experience that I've had and my own personal healing path that I am, you know, an advocate now of being drug free, if at all possible, because I know the dangers of pharmaceuticals and I know the long term detriment of being on any pharmaceutical. There are no innocuous drugs. That's something that I was taught by an old-time pharmaceutical manager that I had, and he told me there is no such thing as a safe drug. All drugs have the potential to kill you, and long-term use of any drug has a detrimental effect on your body system. And that's something that I will take to my grave, remembering that you know there are different Philosophies out there, and you have to seek the alternative philosophies out and use your own spiritual intuition and guidance to determine what's right for you. But anytime that you're taking a drug, you're going to have side effects. It's just a matter of whether or not the side effect is something desired or the side effect is not desirable.
0: It was actually years ago when I was hearing Andrew Weil lecture where he introduced the concept into my brain. Uh, he talks about drugs as he said, A, the placebo effect, that was one of the things that he really blew my mind was when he talked about all, in all of his research looking at pharmaceuticals, when, you, when he said, you, when you go back really far in all the documentation about a drug and you look at it, that there's some study at which they put it up against the placebo and how oftentimes the placebo is only like not even minimally less effective, It's almost sometimes more effective than the actual drug. Placebo is extremely powerful. There was that. And then the other thing, it was he changed the way of looking at it uh, for me by saying drugs don't really have side effects. They just have effects.
1: Right. Period.
0: And you just have to look at what those effects are. Don't think of like, oh, yeah, this may be good for that, but if they give you you loose, gassy stool – it's all effects. It's not, it isn't that this is a side effect of that. It's all the effects of this particular drug. And the idea of going back where you actually, now we would call it an organic diet or, you know, lived on a farm and grew your own food, kind of lived the life that you're doing now in Costa Rica where you're drinking clean water. I mean, it's not like you're doing something magical.
1: Yeah, exactly. We're sourcing foods locally from farmers that are just, you know, down the street. So they're, they're fresh when we get them. And, and yeah, exactly. It's, that's, that's the key. The key is just going back and using your common sense as to how did my grandparents and, you know, my great grandparents live and, and how, how much we have changed from those lifestyles.
0: How far we've gotten away, you know, this, this the technological revolution has its tricky areas. And I think that's part of it is, you know, grandma who cooked, I never called her that. Uh, she would have like hit me with a spoon. Um, but, you know, would cook in that same old funky looking cast iron pan forever. And now here we are 50 years later going, oh, cast irons really, you know, I, I was in the restaurant business for quite some time. And I've seen right, and things. I remember
1: my grandmother used to take, make me take a big tablespoon of castor oil all the time. Oh or, yeah! You know,
0: oh my oh god! Oh
1: my god! I don't want to do that. And of course, yeah. now I know the benefit of essential fatty acids, and you know, exactly. So I'm just, it's yeah, it's amazing what our grandparents knew, and you know, the old quote-unquote wives' tales of, of remedies and things that I currently use. I mean, apple cider vinegar used to be a go-to for my grandmother for a lot of different things, for arthritic pain, for, you know, um, stomach upset, for digestive issues. And, of course, now now they're really singing the praises again of apple cider vinegar, of course, <laughs> organic apple cider vinegar. But um, I think they really knew a lot of things that – that a lot had a lot of wisdom that we have overlooked and I've gone back in fact I'll I'll just share this with you. My grandfather was a wild crafter in the Appalachian Mountains. Wow And he he used to hunt ginseng and used to, you know, go out in the woods and he would take me into the woods when I was a child and he would show me, well this here's yellow root of course and i found out later you know, what yellow root actually was. And, you know, it's a natural antibiotic and, and you can take it for all kinds of things that, you know, to, to clean up infection and, and that sort of thing. And so he was t- constantly teaching me about different plants and different roots and different things that would heal. And I was so bored and I was so I mean when I was in pharma I wouldn't even tell anybody that my grandfather was a wildcrafter. And now I lament the fact that I wasn't paying more attention and that I didn't, you know, take full advantage of that opportunity because of the wisdom that he could have imparted to me, you know?
0: And I bet yellow root had to be a golden seal.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, that's it what it is. It has golden, golden seal. Of course, but I didn't know that until I started working for an urban vitamin company, and then I was like, "Oh, that's what yellow root is. It's golden seal."
0: Wow, what a cool thing to have a grandfather. My grandfather wasn't that cool. I like your grandfather's world of yeah, hunting ginseng, and you know, I love the term hunting ginseng. That always makes me <laughs> chuckle when I think of like, "Oh, we're out hunting the wily ginseng." Just that idea of. Going out into the jungle, or in your case, your father's, into the woods to find these herbs that have benefit to us, we harvest them, we eat them, like eating dandelion root or eating dandelion greens. What a great right. tonic. What a great, you know, just all these things that we could still be doing today and can again. I guess that's what, what I'm really trying to move toward. We can again. You know, eat right. food. We have
1: to Make food. Sure they're not full of uh, glyphosate.
0: Glyphosate <laughs> Ew, no you said way. glyphosate okay. oh no yeah I believe it was on your uh, Facebook page uh, and remind me if you'll say if can you tell us your Facebook page right now and then I'll say this yes just
1: Gwen Olson and um, I have a, a public page as well as a private page. The one with me with all the pink flowers behind me is my personal page. <laughs> and the one of me in a suit, which I rarely wear anymore, is, is the professional public page.
0: A great article. Well, actually, another, a couple of really good articles. One of them was talking about this. Uh, this just blows my mind. Glyphosates now found in our vaccines. I mean, vaccines are not a whole thing under themselves. Let's just put those over there. But now, right. glyphosate in our vaccines? Really?
1: And, if, and interestingly enough, the one that has a large amount of controversy, the MMR vaccine, is where they found the largest concentration of glyphosate. So it was an interesting study, and, and I, I definitely uh, encourage people to, to take a look at it.
0: I'll put the link to that article on your page in both uh, the show notes and in the uh, blog talk like radio and also on the web page at Sound Health Options, so people can find those articles and find your web page. Because that was just—I saw that yesterday, and I just, uh, oh, I just thought, oh no, really? Glyphosate is like that—you know, bad cousin that won't ever leave. It just keeps resurfacing everywhere. It's just mind-boggling to me. I know. To to see it in our vaccines uh, blows my mind. And then there was another great article you had on there talking about Pfizer admits Big Pharma is profiting from addiction. It's product support (laughs) opioid epidemic. They admit it? They actually admit it?
1: Yeah, well, that was a a whistleblower that was admitting it. So it was a former, yeah, it was a former Pfizer CEO.
0: Wow support opioid epidemic. I'd like to hear the word opioid and epidemic used more. That would be a great bumper sticker. Opioid epidemic to really get people to pay attention.
1: Yeah, there's no larger body of opioid addicts than there is in in the pharmaceutical industry because I mean, I I couldn't tell you the number of pharma reps that I knew of when I was in the industry that went through rehab for opioid addiction. So, it's, it is. It's a huge epidemic. And, again, anybody who who doesn't believe that, just watch prescription thugs. Uh, I, I can't plug it enough because I actually think it reaches a demographic that is rarely spoken to, and that is the male that takes these drugs because a lot of men, you know, they, they break something or – they have a sports injury or something and they end up on these drugs and they become addicts, just like you said, that are taking 40, 50 of these pills a day. And you think that they have to be exaggerating, but then you see that that's literally what these guys, I mean, that's what the tolerance they build up for the drug that they end up taking those many per day in order to, to meet their addiction.
0: Well, there was one character, I don't remember his name. He was a, uh one of those gnarly wrestlers, UFA or some unlimited fighting. I don't know. It was bad. Really amazing. Mm -hmm. And he, and he talked about at one point, he talked about what his wife would lay out for him in the morning. Mm -hmm. And it was just an amazing, it blew my mind of how would you take what he took and even function, but that shows that, that shows or demonstrates the, You know, what happens when you take it for a period of time and then your body begins to adapt and you require more and more and more. But even so, I mean, what he was taking in the morning, I can't, I would have to like lay down or go to the ER if I took just one dose of what he took in the morning. It blew exactly, my mind that, and did you,
1: know, you also notice he was on two impotence drugs, Viagra and Cialis, in yes, addition and he to all took them this all together?
0: Story. He just like yeah, he I'm taking crazy. my Vicodin, my Oxycodone, and my Cialis and my Viagra every morning, and I'm like, oh my God, I'd have a heart attack and what? I, it's
1: Absolutely, amazing.
0: So and you know, and you
1: know that's why the number one cause of accidental death also in the U.S. is drug overdose. Because people are taking so many multiple pharmaceuticals, and when they do the the drug trials on these things they don't they don 't have people that are taking multiple drugs concomitantly; they only have one drug, so they have no idea what the drugs are going to do when they're taken in combination, and where you know you have four or five pharmaceuticals and a couple of supplements and an over-the-counter this or that, and plus what you're eating. And, you know, then we get into the whole cytochrome P450 enzyme system and how everything's metabolized through that. And you get into huge accidental, you know, overdose. So that's, that's a huge problem as well. So this epidemic is not just causing people to have dysfunctional lives. It's actually taking lives in very large numbers.
0: Wow. I'm stunned to see that where our hour is careening up quickly. I want you to tell people a how they can support you in the work that you're doing, because I really, you're such a great rabble rouser. I mean, you're that, you're that slightly spooky, but in such a good way, that mix of somebody who was (laughs) in the world, who was, you know, really in the world doing it and being very successful, representing representing the pharmaceutical industry. And then you snapped, again in a good way, and went, what? And now you're here today wanting to really coach people and help them as a personal you know, health coach or as a health coach, helping people figure it out or get their way out of it or at least just you know, poke their head up out of the ground and go, wow, I could do something different? I mean, that's, that's so powerful. So how can people support you? How do we find you? How do we work with you? All of that.
1: You know, in December of this year, it will be 12 years since my niece committed suicide, and that was the impetus for me uh, to write my book, "Confessions of an Rx Drug Pusher," and I self-published because I didn't want to be censored uh, by anyone. And I still, to this day, I have I have financed and done all of my own work, and I have not sold products, and I have not. Um, had advertising on my web page or any of that because I didn't want any conflicts of interest and I didn't want anyone to feel like that I was advising them to get off drugs because I had something else that I wanted to sell them. Well, that has ended up shooting me in the foot long term because, of course, I I haven't been able to uh, have my, because of the non-disclosure and confidentiality agreements that I've broken, I haven't gotten my my, uh, retirement funds from pharma and then I've spent Everything that I made in pharma, and then some trying to support this work because I have, you know, I've testified before Congress, I've testified before the FDA, I've been in all kinds of media and just all over the world and conferences speaking to people. So I would really appreciate if everyone would take a visit to my website, gwenolson.com. And I have a donation page there. I'm currently running a fundraiser because I want to take my work to the next level. I am working as a certified health coach, and I'd love to work with people who aren't already, you know, train wrecks because of pharmaceuticals. I would love to be able to work with people that are trying to to stay away from having to do drugs and want to just be proactive and to take care of themselves naturally because I've done an extensive amount of research and training in order to, to have that knowledge base to assist people. And I also have a huge uh, body of practitioners and other uh, alternative health care providers that, you know, I can can refer people to for different modalities that they might be interested in, like acupuncture and chiropractor and all of that sort of thing. But um, any support that I can get, whatever little bit that I can get financially, I want to start doing my own podcasts. I want to, to revamp my book and put that out. I want to revamp my website. I have a lot of things that I want to do to continue the work because it isn't getting any better. In 12 years, it has not gotten better. It's only gotten worse. And that really doesn't—that doesn't, that doesn't um, discourage me. It inspires me. It inspires me to continue to keep going, even though it's tiring and sometimes it's very lonely out here to have the opinions that I have. But I do believe that there's a, a large number of people in the American population that are waking up, and I would love their support to help me to continue to do the work that I do and to—to to, um, you know. Championed um, the work that, that I'm doing and helped me to spread the word of, of what's going on in our general population, but particularly how that they're targeting our children. Because it not only takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to protect our children, and I need help.
0: I cannot advocate enough for uh, people. Uh, I'll put again, this will be, I'll post this in both chats. The first show we did. With Gwen was back in, like I say, just it was on the 13th of September 2015, where we were talking Mm -hmm. about transmissions of an Rx drug pusher. And that was a great show. And it really talks much more about the book, which is a great read. Great with, you know, a cranky undertone because of what you're talking about. (laughs) And I mean, again, that in a good way, but it's like, oh, no, it's all true. Uh, So that is really good. And I really suggest that people watch uh, the prescription thugs because as you said, that is a really great thing about this film, is it's talking from a market and to a market who I don't think gets talked to that much. Exactly. These these professional bodybuilding, they're not thugs. They're like gentle giants, but this is what they do for a living. They're gladiators of some kind, I would call them. And it's Mm -hmm. just, it's a really interesting story of they're doing this to be able to do what they do, but wow. And the twist ending, boy, that is amazing. And it's a great story. I mean, it's it's a it's a very good documentary. I just can't say thank you enough. And absolutely, everybody, go support Gwen's work because it is so. We need this information out there. People need the opportunity for change. And you're definitely one of those positive Not only a rabble rouser, but now you're a rabble rouser who can really help people and guide them with coaching, to, well, here, what about, let's, you know, look at this as a possibility. And you have all this spooky information in your head about drugs.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, amazing how that worked out, isn't
0: it? <laughs> it is. Like you said, if, if 20 years ago somebody had, your future self had gone back and handed you an envelope and said, in 20 years you'll be talking against everything that you're doing now, and you'd go, what? It's yeah. amazing. It, it's really amazing. So that was really great. Gwen. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you for having me again, Richard. It's always a pleasure and I'd love to do it again sometime.
0: You bet. Thank you. Everybody have a great rest of the weekend. Bye-bye.